Good morning and welcome to the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast with myself, Dr Andy Matheson. No particular theme this week, we're just going to run through a few articles that have uh, caught my eye. So the first one was looking at this idea of what what's the impact of fasting uh, on our health and our athletic training. And this was more looking at the health side of things. It was in the um, European Journal of Clinical Nutrition. It was called Impact of Religious Fasting on Metabolic and Hematological Profile in Both Dyslipidemic and Non-Dyslipidemic Fasters. And the first author was Papas Aglou. And like a lot of the fasting things, it was a little bit unsatisfying. Um, I'm sure many of you have read some of the previous religious fasting ones that had showed interesting ideas of of benefits from religious fasting, but were either not large enough or not clear enough in identifying what are the confounding factors of people who will observe religious fasts that make their lifestyles and the changes that they might get from fasting difficult to bring across to my general population. So uh, in this one they looked at uh, Greek Orthodox participants who abstained from meat, fish and dairy for seven weeks and then a second group of younger Muslim participants abstaining totally from food and liquid uh, from dawn till sunset during 30 days. Now instantly we're sort of thinking uh, uh, this looks really nice but the numbers are a little bit too small for me to really take much away from that. The The useful thing I did take away was that in the Greek Orthodox participants there was a, a drop in the B12 and calcium levels uh, that you would expect uh, but nothing that wouldn't probably be uh, pretty clear to advise anyone that was following a dietary pattern like that. Um, and the young non-disciplinary Muslim participants, whilst they found some results that they said was um, sort of significant, uh, I think with 15 in number, it's uh, difficult to take much away. So, uh, still waiting for a uh, fasting study that we can really get our teeth in and that uses this huge uh, sort of religious cohort to kind of give us a bit more data. Um, as far as fasting, it's there's, there's so many positive studies out there on how good it is for our microbiome and and we all understand well if we can match it up to training and do fasted training there's lots of biochemical studies showing okay look we can improve pgc alpha we can maintain performance uh it'd just be nice to have something better to take it all together so we'll uh, we'll keep our eye out and see what we can find. And if, if anyone's got a, a better paper or, or, or that they've seen, uh, do let me know because I'm uh, I'm constantly looking. The next uh, study was uh, very different in that it was absolutely on my cohort of patients that I, I would see in British general practice. 
possibly not really aimed at athletes, but uh, some really interesting ideas for a certain groups of, of older athletes or masters athletes. So it was called Renal Function in Patients Following a Low-Carbohydrate Diet for Type 2 Diabetes, a review of the literature and analysis of routine clinical data from a primary care service over seven years. And David Unwin was the first author. It was published in uh, Current Opinions in Endocrinology, Diabetes and Obesity. And it was uh, done not too far away from where I, I work. Now, there were lots of things I really, really enjoyed about this. Uh, it was mostly just trying to kind of push back against this, uh, these negative ideas that kind of filter down when you, when you suggest low-carbohydrate diets to people, uh, mostly based on years of uh, kind of teaching in medical schools. Uh, if we increase the protein, is that not going to put a strain on the kidneys, um, which doesn't make a huge amount of physiological sense, but uh, is certainly something that is out there and fairly accepted. Uh, and they've done a lovely long study to, to, to show that that's not the case in people who we really do need to be quite thoughtful about their, um, their renal function. So uh, they had 485 uh, participants that sort of dropped down to 140-odd. Um, they monitored their kind of HbA1c, so their sort of diabetes control. They monitored their renal function through a variety of very standard blood tests. They looked at their blood pressure, their HDL, and their weight. And as you'd expect from things like the, the direct study, um, if you're able to sell it to the patients and they'll buy into a diet like this, it seems to work and every one of those improved. They also recorded the sorts of medications they were on. This, these are patients who were on a lot of medications and, and diabetes would be a really significant part of their life. And of the 143, 68 came off all medications. Um, again, reflecting what we kind of see in seen in that uh, sort of previous Taylor's um, study on uh, sort of the very low calorie diets that they've they've managed up at Newcastle and the incredible results they've got. Um, so another group of doctors that will be making themselves very unpopular with the uh, drug reps that come to visit them. Um, so where would this fit in for the sort of athletic population? I think just something we can take away that, okay, changing to a low carbohydrate and a higher protein diet is not going to impact people's renal function. And it's just more evidence for that. In, in the, these were in people with really delicate kidneys, for want of a better phrase. Now, the downside of this paper was I couldn't really see, it, it wasn't really aimed at the nutrition um, audience and there wasn't much on, did they record the, the sort of changes in diet, how were they eating differently. They gave the diet sheet that they've given to them, but they've not said what did the protein increase by, how much did the fat intake increase by. Uh, but I, I get it, it wasn't really the, the focus of it. Um, maybe I'll, I'll be able to uh, sort of dig around and find it in, in some of the uh, additional data, but not, but not so far. 
But uh, other than that, it'd just be nice to know a little bit more. Um, a lovely study and something that you would certainly feel in any diabetic master athlete, um, you could you could suggest to them as, as something to prove that changes uh, will be will be safe and effective. The, the next study was uh, one that's uh, been in the papers a little bit. Uh, it was in JAMA. It was effective long-term supplementation with marine omega-3 fatty acids versus placebo on risk of depression or clinically relevant depressive symptoms and on change in mood scores. Uh, and the first author was Oreki. Last author, Manson. Now, obviously, we, we touched a few weeks ago, uh, or maybe a few months ago now, on omega-3 and just chatted about where, what the state of play was with that. Uh, one of, there's a few kind of risks that are constantly uh, dug up and we talked about how maybe they weren't particularly accurate. For example, the AF doesn't seem to also result in increase in mortality. This was interesting. This this was a sort of a cohort looking at just under twenty thousand uh, adult participants in a what was called the Vital Dep trial, looking at sort of vitamin D and omega three, and they said that there was a slight increase in the uh, depression risk scores in the omega three supplementation group, uh, and that it wasn't uh, something that was being confounded by anything else that they were looking at. Uh, okay, uh, interesting. Um, again, cohort study w with uh, depression risk scores, which are sort of hugely easy to have unseen confounders in. So, can we ever really take much away from a um, a cohort study looking at depression? Probably not. Um, in the in the bit on this, which I found difficult, and again, if anyone can find it, because I couldn't, please do let me know, was I couldn't really find the data on the vitamin D, which I, I would have thought would be the first thing you'd have to say. I appreciate you've given some of them vitamin D and you've given some of them omega-3 and you said there's, that's had no impact. But what was the vitamin D levels before you did that? What was uh, What was going on there? So uh, an interesting one, it'll be interesting to see if anything more comes about it. I get the feeling from tr struggling to find much uh, of the data that I wanted there in it, that this is going to be one of maybe a number of publications in this area and that there'll be, it'll be a bit easier to figure out from the next, the next article. So after that, the next one I went looking at was... Uh, it was an article called um, The Effects of Mental Cycle Phase on Exercise Performance in Eumenoremic Women, a Systemic Review and Meta-Analysis. Now, this was a couple of years old, um, and I was looking at it because of another article that came up, but it was just reminding myself, uh, it was from, so this was... Uh, Kelly Lee McNulty, first author, uh, Kirsty Professor Sale, Elliot Sale involved. Um, and they essentially came to the conclusion that uh, there may be small uh, changes um, in exercise performance in early follicular phase, but a lot of work needs to be done to break down actually what, what do we mean by exercise performance, what type of exercise performance, uh, and 
of the trials, the vast, vast majority, when formally looked at, came under the uh, kind of banner of low quality. So essentially, there might be something there, but nothing, nothing in these this this meta analysis will will give us a, a, a clear clear answer. Um, so the paper I sort of saw with interest uh, this week was called "Influence of Menstrual Cycle or Hormonal Contraceptive Phase on Physiological Variables Monitored During Treadmill Testing," um, and it was uh, Tapal Mikkonen as the first author, and it was published in Frontiers in Physiology. Um, again, it, it, interesting, a uh, little disappointing in the kind of low numbers. Uh, I think it was uh, 16 and 12 in the two, two groups that they looked at. And they concluded that there was no significant changes uh, in the treadmill performance looking at aerobic and anaerobic thresholds and VO2. So uh, useful, and I can say, well, there's, there's in a small study with very low numbers, there doesn't seem to be a big difference. So if you want to reassure athletes who are getting worried um, about menstrual cycle and the impact on their training, you might use this as reassuring, but it's certainly with these numbers, it's not going to change the way most people are going to think and feel. Uh, and the last study was, uh, again, also in the Frontiers in Nutrition. It was a little review just Looking at uh, a something as doctors we probably don't have much of a clue about, and that was uh, muscle building supplements. So this was about the testicular cancer risk and muscle building supplements. Uh, it was by Girardi et al. It was can muscle building supplements increase testicular cancer risk? So. The problem with this is how, how in essentially what they say is no one knows. Um, the, two, the two difficulties that no one really seems to be able to get over is, one, a lot of supplements outside the kind of informed by sports ones have a lot of contaminants in, uh, and they talk a little bit about that. Um, and I was reminded of a, a paper that came out when I was, um, it must have been 2010 now, that um, around the world took and assessed uh, packets of drugs bought uh, over the counter from pharmacies just to see if they contained what they said they would. And most of them were uh, various treatments for infectious diseases. Uh, and it was kind of mostly developing world uh, and some, some developed world. And there was just very little of any of the drugs um, in, in there. And it was a it was a useful wake-up call for myself at the time and uh, certainly when working in the military just to be very aware that if if I bought locally and outside a kind of EU or kite-marked area, uh, I wouldn't really know what, what might be in there. Um, and the same is true for supplements. It's uh, what's, what what's are you getting? What's actually in there? So the first one is uh, we don't really know what, supplements people use and what's what's in them in the second one is certainly as doctors no one is honest with us about their um st steroid or or other uh, sort of illegal supplement use so uh it, the the article that they kind of refer back to um was one in this sort of british journal of cancer from 2015 which 
um, just sort of grouped together muscle building supplements by Lee et al. Uh, and testicular germ cell cancer risk and said um, they did a case control study um, looking at 356 uh, cancer patients compared to controls uh, and they said there was significant increased risk or the odds ratio for use of uh, supplements in relation to cancer risk was significantly elevated and in particular among early users of supplements and men with more different types of supplements and longer period of use. Now, whether or not those would then link into people that either were going to be exposed to more contaminated supplements or people who had been using for longer and then had moved on to, to alternatives such as uh, sort of androgenic steroids, uh, yeah, uh, you can kind of draw your own conclusions there. So, um, and then one of the reasons why this caught my eye is because I've been talking to some colleagues about gynecomastia and how challenging it is as a doctor to try and say in young men with it, well, is this linked to your steroid use? And, and you, can, you can ask, but uh, you'll often not get a, an honest answer. And when I, when I talk to other members of the sort of the multidisciplinary teams that I'm in or people that work in other roles, some some people in roles don't get an honest answer but some people actually get a very honest answer and some of the sort of sports therapists and uh, trainers I talk to say yeah yeah absolutely athletes are completely honest and actually come to them asking for advice on how to use more effectively even if it, they've made their views on it very clear so uh, we're a, we're a bit like I often feel like a dentist asking about do you floss um, everyone's just gonna lie uh, so what, what, what do I take away from that? Uh, education of people, uh, just bring it up. Um, more likely to, to be honest with you if you bring it up. Uh, and in people with any supplement use, have, have cancer risk at the back of my head um, and try and promote self-examination. So uh, that was the last of uh, last of the articles hope you're having a great week uh, and get some good training done and i'll speak to you soon bye